Hello everyone, welcome to the very first episode of Sunrise Weekly. We are an online show dedicated to uplifting local community voices of justice, analyzing local politics through a progressive lens, and updating you all with what Sunrise El Paso is doing. My name is Miguel, I am your host for this week. I'm 22 years old and I was born and raised here in El Paso. I'm one of the founding members of Sunrise El Paso back in the summer of 2019. So what is Sunrise El Paso and what are we trying to accomplish? Well, we are a local, autonomous, grassroots, youth-led, intersectional climate justice movement that aims to make our community economically, socially, and environmentally more sustainable. We are part of a nationwide movement of young people all over the country dedicated to ushering in transformative climate justice policies on a federal, state, and local level. On a national stage, Sunrise Movement has been instrumental in bringing the Green New Deal into the popular political conversation. We can talk to you for hours about what the Green New Deal is. But very briefly, the Green New Deal is a movement to implement just transitions to renewable energy by 2030 while simultaneously addressing economic, racial, and social injustices in our society. Green New Deal policies can be implemented on a state, on a local, or on a federal or worldwide level. So there are hundreds of Sunrise Hubs all over the country ready to implement their own Green New Deal solutions within their own community contexts. The founding of our Sunrise Hub started in the summer of 2019, when a group of us got together to organize El Paso's climate strike back in September. There we rallied over a hundred people to stand up and fight for climate justice, locally. Since then, we have aimed to stand in solidarity with local struggles for environmental justice. We have fought J.P. Morgan Chase, the world's leading financier of the climate crisis, from trying to take over and control our electric grid and energy. And we have launched the El Paso Green New Deal Summit, a citywide community outreach initiative to democratically and collaboratively envision what the Green New Deal would look like for our city. Now, we welcome you to our latest eco-education project, the Sunrise Weekly Online Show. And we're excited to present to you the program that we have prepared for you today. First, a couple of core Sunrise organizers will join us to discuss what we're up to with the El Paso Green New Deal Summit. Secondly, we will interview Veronica Carvajal, candidate to be El Paso's next mayor, to talk about why local politics are so important in this day and age. Lastly, Luis Miranda, freelance journalist and core Sunrise organizer, will share local headlines and analyze them through a progressive lens. So I hope you'll enjoy today's show. Thank you. Welcome back everyone to the Sunrise Weekly Show. This segment, we're gonna be talking about the El Paso Green New Deal Summit, 
This is a whole project um, that Sunrise at Basel has been launching and we're really excited to share with you all about what this is. So joining us today, we have Angel and Desiree, two core organizers uh, that were key to making this program happen. Um, yeah, Desiree and, and, and Angel, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, so uh, we're gonna have uh, a little conversation about what we've been doing and what we plan to do for the summit. Um, but before we get into that, um, I wanted to discuss what the goal and what the philosophy of the summit is, right? So the Green New Deal Summit uh, comes from this idea that we can be empowered in our local politics, that we don't have to wait for state or federal uh, politicians to enact our own forms of climate, climate justice policies, right? And so uh, the idea is to reach out to the community, to reach out to um, members of different civil society organizations, um, different activist spaces um, or industrial workers and listen to them and um, try to democratically and collaboratively envision what it would mean like to have the Green New Deal here in El Paso, right? So it's very community driven and it's very collaborative. Um, so yeah, we have four basic goals in, in, this, in this project. Uh, first one is to create an alliance of progressives, right? Um, we understand that uh, as an intersectional movement, we can't just rely on the environmentalists. We have to make the connection between the injustices of capitalism, of imperialism, homophobia, sexism, and bridge all of these struggles into one single fight for justice, right? Um, so create an alliance of progressives. Number two is uh, to publish what we're calling the Alianza Manifesto. And this is a document that basically lays out all of what we've envisioned for this summit in, in a clear way that we can communicate with our community members. Uh, third goal that we have is to educate and mobilize at least 2,400 community members to be Green New Deal champions, to advocate for what we're, what we're um, promoting and to actively support us. So why did we choose the number uh, 2,400? It may sound pretty random, uh, but according to um, academic research, all we need is 3.5% of a population to really uh, enact transformative change. And so that's 3.5% that's of El Paso. The, the fourth one, the fourth goal that we have for this summit is to create an electoral and a non-electoral strategy for building community power. And so um, with that, I will hand it over to Desiree. So Desiree, uh, what is the structure of this summit? How are we organizing this complicated process that's involving a lot of community members? So um, as you had said, Miguel, things that are really important to this Green New Deal Summit project as well to as Sunrise El Paso as a whole is intersectionality and solidarity, which means that we work, we work 
outside of Sunrise El Paso with other organizations and community members to ensure that um, we have processes and, and projects that are as democratic as possible and have as many voices as possible. So what we've done is we've broken up um, all of these community members what are what we're calling our delegates who are participating in the summit into 12 different work groups. And I'll just quickly go through what each one of the work groups is. So the first one is clean energy. And this is a really like kind of technical work group, which would have, um, you know, people who, who know a lot about solar energy and things like this to imagine how it is technologically feasible to transition El Paso to 100% renewable energy, which of course um, would make the most sense, right? Because we have so much solar energy potential here in El Paso. The next one is environmental racism, which is trying to ensure access to clean, safe, clean and safe living conditions, working conditions and schools for all El Paso citizens, which means that they don't live in areas or go to school in areas where they have to be right next to recycling plants or um, oil refineries or anything like that. Uh, the next one is labor justice, which is trying to incorporate all workers into the new green economy. So this is really trying to aim to make sure that when we're creating a green economy, we aren't leaving anybody behind by just getting rid of, of fossil fuel workers, right? Because we blame the fossil fuel CEOs, not the rank and file workers for climate change. So the next one is the low carbon care industry, which is basically trying to imagine all of the aspects of our society, which are really important, but don't necessarily make a lot of carbon now, right? So since they already don't make a lot of carbon, we're trying to Put more resources into them so that people can spend more time doing those things. Um, these are things such as education, art, um, daycare, recreation, anything cultural, anything um, like that. The next one is immigration justice, which is trying to take into account how immigration and migrants come into play in the green economy. The next one is transportation, so trying to shift us to fossil fuel free transportation in El Paso which would be things like building um, a light rail, improving busing, stuff like that. The next one is food justice and land rehabilitation, which is a really big work group. It's trying to ensure that everyone in El Paso has access to sustainable, locally sourced, healthy, and culturally appropriate foods, as well as conserving um, our natural land and ensuring animal rights and ecological sustainability. The next one is gentrification and housing, which is making sure that everyone has a, a place to live. And this also includes um, reparations um, and making sure that housing is a human right. The next one is gender issues, which includes ecofeminism and LGBTQ issues. So as a lot of you may know, these categories of people are most often more profoundly affected by climate injustice as compared to the population as a whole. So we wanted to take, take extra care to make sure that things like reproductive rights and combating femicide are at the forefront of our Green New Deal. The next one is healthcare. Um, there are a lot of aspects to healthcare which are unsustainable and even aside from environmental issues, they are just not working for our society. And so this healthcare group is really important, not only for creating um, eco-friendly care, but also just for ensuring that everyone in El Paso has healthcare, the healthcare that they need. The next one is military families for climate justice. 
So this one is trying to incorporate pro-peace, anti-imperialism, and anti-imperialism into our climate plan by getting corpless families involved in the climate justice movement. The last one is finan financing and municipal power, which is kind of the boring one, but it's one of the most important ones because this one is really trying to ensure that all of these grand ideas that we have are feasible and it imagines how we could get these things done and what's actually possible for us to do at a local level. Awesome. Yeah, th thank you for, for giving us um, a summary of all of those work groups. As you all can see, there's a lot of different aspects, right, of this Green New Deal. That's because we're trying to be comprehensive and because we're aiming to be as intersectional as possible. Um, but uh, like we've already mentioned, this program has already launched. So we've already made some progress. Um, Angel, can you tell us a little bit about what we were able to accomplish in April? What happened in April? Yeah, sure, I can tell you. Um, so April is a busy month, but April is a good month actually. Busy so month. we, yeah, it was. So we launched um, phase one of the Green New Deal Summit as Miguel and Desiree have mentioned. So it's it was a, a week long kind of coalition and we started the 21st of April and it went on to that Saturday, which was the 25th. We had about 80 delegates in, or we did have 80 delegates in attendance. So that was really good. That was a pretty good um, participation number on everyone's part. Uh, we also um, sent out some post-meeting surveys. We got a lot of positive feedback on those, so that was good. It's also really exciting to hear what everyone had to say. Um, and the work groups that Desiree just mentioned, we also um, delegated some organizers to those as well. We have um, people signed up for those. So we're ready to get those started come May. Oh, we also organized our May welcome call and orientation to recruit some new members into Sunrise. And we hopped on that call. Um, this past Saturday, May 9th, but we organized that in April to get that ready for everyone. So yeah, it was busy. It was it was good though. The Green New Deal Summit um, was a large part of our month, but it was it, it turned out really good and everyone's efforts and um, participation was really, really did pay off. So um, yeah, that was that was April for us. It was a good month. Yeah, like you mentioned, it, it was a very collaborative effort right you all can agree it was like so uh we did we did four four different uh throughout the week right and and in each one of those different uh summit meetings in april we basically laid out the the our values and our goals and and our philosophy for the green new deal to 80 different community members and um so um it was it was a presentation that was done by various different uh, Sunrise organizers, including uh, Angel, including Desiree. So um, yeah, and I thought it was really really great. Um, and we're always trying to absorb new members and uh, invite and welcome new organizers into this because, as you can tell, there's a lot of work that's going on here, and we need. Um, your help. 
Um, so yeah, what we, we were able to accomplish uh, these goals in April. Um, now we're in May. Desiree, can you tell us about how we're kind of shifting gears in May and how we're continuing to advance this program? Yeah, definitely. We, we still have a ton of work ahead of us in May and, and in the months going forward beyond May. Um, so or, originally we had planned to have this summit in person, which is going to be like a whole thing, a whole day's worth of meetings and we were going to have meetings every month. Um, unfortunately, that can't happen anymore. So now what we have is like a whole mess of Zoom calls that we have to have every month, but um, which offers it, it's kind of, I think, benefits and, and cons, which we found. But yeah, basically moving forward into May, what we're going to do is break out into our work groups and do what we're calling a material analysis. So what we're going to be doing in these in these meetings is that we're kind of going to take a, you know, have conversations and take a look around El Paso within each work group and think about what we feel are the biggest problems. So, for example, in the in the transportation work group, um, they could maybe say, well, it's really difficult to get from the east side of El Paso to the west side of El Paso. So what we're our biggest grievance that we're making for this work group is that we need to have a light rail that goes across the, the entire El Paso area. And so basically that's the plan for the material analysis. We're gonna, each work group is gonna have their own individual Zoom call with their own experts who chose to be in those calls. Um, they're not limited, the, the delegates aren't limited to one work group, but they're probably gonna be in, in one to two work groups and they're gonna meet and discuss and come up with a list of 10 grievances that they feel are the biggest issues for that specific work group in the El Paso area. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I'm very excited about uh, May because in April it was kind of like we really needed to um, present the, the whole idea and the whole philosophy of this project to the delegates. But now it's like we're taking a step back and listening to what the delegates have to say. Um, so, so yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be exciting. And um, yeah, we can we can talk next about what happens after May, right? So we're gonna have this material analysis of twelve different work groups. Uh, we're gonna compile that into a single document. And uh, if you can see here on the screen, um, after that, we're going to go into phase three, into step three, which is uh, brainstorming the actual solution. So we already have. Um, a list of grievances um, that were authored by community members. So now in the months of June and July, we're going to convene again as work groups to brainstorm how we can get Green New Deal solutions to all of these um, issues that have been identified. Um, it's going to be a month that consists of a lot of creative envisioning. Uh, we're going to take a lot of our solutions from case studies of what other cities have done, what other countries have done. Um, and But we can also be completely innovative because there are a lot of aspects that make this community very unique. And so it's going to be uh, an exciting phase where we're going to be looking at solutions. And then um, the that will lead us to the fourth stage, which is weaving all of these solutions into a single cohesive document, which 
like I mentioned, we're calling the Alianza Manifesto. Um, and this is going to be the portion where we're going to try to broadcast our message to the broader El Paso community, right? We're going to do this through different social media and, um, you know, pamphlets, um, advertisings, etc. But we're, it's going to be the portion where we're going to try to broadcast our message to everyone. Um, and then step five, uh, the last portion of this program is we're, when we have the solutions already set, um, we've broadcasted our solutions to the, to the broader El Paso community. And now we're actually trying to build the political pressure and the community power necessary to enact our vision. And that is where we're going to be creatively trying to put political pressure into um, our into the different politicians running for office. Um, or we can do this uh, through a non-electoral route, right? So that is basically a summary of, of the Green New Deal Summit. It's a lot, right? Um, Angel and Desiree, you can agree, like, it is a lot of work and um but we're we're very excited to continue doing this because um what gets me most excited about this uh project is the amount of response that we've gotten um when we were first um envisioning this activity um this was back in uh probably november is when we first got this idea and we were thinking hey we should invite at least 30 organizations and community members now we're up to 80 and the the amount of people that have signed up are still increasing so uh in may we had 80 members participate and now we're at 90 that have signed up so that's what that's what's uh giving me a lot of inspiration is just the the community response that we've gotten so far. Um, I'll open it up to to you all, uh, Desiree and Angel. What what excites you the most about this project? Uh, yeah, I, I feel the same as you, Miguel. Like the the amount of response that we've gotten, that's really exciting to me because I think what's really important about this project is is yes, we're going to create the the Alianza Manifesto, but also I think that the um, what's really going to create change is the relationships that we build and the people we meet who become dedicated and invested in our cause. And like I said, we've had to kind of shift our, ourselves online and that's been a difficult transition, but at the same time, we've learned how to use a lot of new tools and gotten more comfortable with the tools that we have. So when we can meet in person, we'll be able to both use the technology that we've gotten used to and be able to meet in person. And I feel like it'll really create a strong movement and relationships between us and the community. Yeah, I love Desiree's point. I um remember meeting with Miguel back in like February, January, <laughs> and he told me about the Green New Deal Summit. And I told him one of the um, biggest things I'm excited for is to learn about um, just like climate change and whatnot. And um, I mean, you can read about it and you can like take classes on it or whatever, but it's more exciting to learn how climate you know how you can make a difference like hands-on so the you know like the first hand 
learning experience is really what's exciting also yeah the coalitions are um like an exciting part of this project as well so yeah thanks for having that putting that together awesome yeah um that that that's pretty much uh what we have for today on the summit um i wanted to direct um a message to you to the viewer um if you are interested in being part of this project uh please we invite you to to be part of this um and you can you can basically join in and be part of this project in one of two ways so the first way you can participate is through uh a delegate right so um in the show notes we'll include um a link to apply to be a delegate but basically a delegate is um, someone that joins a work group and um, contributes their expertise and their their analysis and their their time to envision collectively the the El Paso Green New Deal, right? So you can do it through that route, and uh, that includes a time commitment of, you know, we have at least one three-hour call per work group every month, plus a few hours of research. Um, so that's the commitment there. Or you could join through th the higher level, which is join as an organizer, as someone that is organizing the work group calls, someone that is reaching out to different community members to invite them to participate. And yeah, that's basically uh, participating as a Sunrise organizer. Um, we invite you to participate in either either one of those. Um, you know, obviously, if you're interested, um, contact us, let us know. We're very interested in having everyone involved. But um, yeah, that, that, that's it for, for this segment. I hope we gave you a good idea about what this project is. We will be um, updating you all uh, periodically throughout the following months uh, for this project. But yeah, Angel and Desiree, any other last thoughts? Uh, no, thanks for having us, Miguel. Sure, sure. Thank you for, for hopping on. Um, but with that being said, uh, we can go on to our next segment. We are very honored to present the next guest on today's show. Her name is Veronica Carvajal. She is an environmentalist fronteriza. She is a community lawyer and an activist running to be mayor of El Paso this November. Veronica has spent her career as a lawyer advocating for vulnerable communities and the environment. A few of her notable cases include resisting gentrification in Duranguito, decreasing pollution from the Azarco refinery, fighting back a polluting natural gas facility in Montana Vista, and advocating for dozens of tenants facing eviction. She is a Green New Deal champion, and she's even participating in the El Paso Green New Deal Summit as a delegate. Sunrise El Paso is proud to endorse her to be the next mayor of El Paso. And with her experience in local struggles, in her legal expertise, and the lessons she has learned throughout the campaign, Veronica joins us today to talk about why local politics are so important and why local political actions can be empowering in an era of Trump. 
Here's our interview with Veronica Carvajal. Vero, so uh, thank you for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so like we mentioned before, uh, we're going to be talking about local politics. And since you are a candidate for mayor, it would it's a great fit. And um, to start us off, we were thinking, um, if you could tell us a little bit about your background. So um, how, how did your background lead you to run for mayor, to want to run for mayor? Um, so I, am an, I was born in El Paso, um, as was my mom, as was my, my grandfather. Um, and my apologies, this is a story. I like to tell stories, but I think it, it no helps us to, to understand uh, why people do what they do. Um, I grew up in Juarez and we commuted to El Paso um, every day. And there were things that I saw, right, when, when we commuted. Um, I saw kids that looked just like me. We had brown hair, brown eyes, brown skin, um, but they weren't going to school. They were working. They were selling newspapers and trinkets. They were begging. Um, and I didn't understand why, because I knew from a very early age that the reason that we commuted was because my mom, who worked really low-wage jobs, could not afford to get us a house in El Paso. And so we lived with my grandparents in Juarez. Um, but I knew that the struggles that we went through to get to school and to work every day were so that I would get a better education and I wouldn't work the jobs that she was working. So when I saw these kids, I would just wondered why our lives were so different because I didn't see a way out for them. And um, so uh, when I was about nine years old, my great-grandfather, we called him Patano, he stayed with us for a couple of weeks and every morning I would like rush to, to see him and we would both have coffee and talk about all his stories. And a couple of days into his visit, I finally got the courage to ask him why he was a politician. Um, he was actually mayor of Guadalupe Distrito Bravo, which is on the other side of Fabens. And I asked him that because my grandparents did not like politicians. They would read the newspaper every day and they would comment and say things like, los políticos son una bola de rateros, you know, politicians are a bunch of thieves, they can't be trusted, they're only looking out for themselves. And so I loved and respected my great-grandfather, I didn't understand why he became a politician. So I asked him and he said, yo me uní al partido, um, el PRI, porque me cansé de ver cómo explotaban a mi gente. So I joined the PRI, the party, because I got tired of seeing them exploit my people. And so I know that we complain about having a two-party system, but in Mexico for over 100 years, there was one party system, and that was a PRI. Yeah. And what my patano was referring to um, was the fact that, um, well, what, what happened during that conversation was that my mind was blown. And I realized that the poverty that I saw, the poverty that kept my mom from being able to afford decent housing for us, the poverty that kept these kids on the streets um, working alongside their parents instead of going to school was not divine. It wasn't God saying, you get to be full of opportunities and you don't. Um, what he said to me helped me realize that the 
things that we see that are unjust are not um, an act of God, they're an act of people. So it is people who choose to um, exploit one another. It is people who choose to create these systems of exploitation um, that, that trickle all the way down to little kids who have to work at age six. And so that really changed everything for me because I realized then that um, I could choose which side I wanted to be on. And I chose to, to work for justice um, at a pretty, pretty, pretty early age. That said, I never thought that I would follow his example or any other politician's example. Um, I really wanted to provide direct services to people. Um, and I saw that as, as the best way to give agency um, to people whose voices are often ignored. And so I, you know, um, I did well in school. I went to college. I went to law school and decided to commit myself to legal aid and to provide um, work that's been really exciting, as well as I think in many ways um, it has been transformative. It has we have managed to transform people's lives in really important ways and to also transform systems, even though they're small systems, but I think that the work that I've been um, a part of has helped to change the way certain people behave in, in our city. Awesome, yeah, thank, thank you for that testimony. Um, and I, I think it's very interesting you talk about like direct, uh, direct services, direct aid, and talking about systems, right, because that's something that we're very interested in uh, when it comes to the climate crisis, right? Because as much as um, we can take individual actions to change and to be more environmentally sustainable, at the end of the day, we're operating under these systems. So um, we look at uh, the Trump era where environmental regulations are constantly being rolled back and climate denialism is, runs rampant all over federal Congress, even here in, in, our, state, in our state government. Um, so my question to you is, how can political activism focused on local city level government, how can that be beneficial for our community? Oh, oh my gosh. Um, it's, I mean, and I think this, I, well, I think that one of the best things that we can do as environmentalists is to bring things home to the very local level because this really impacts um, our elections. People historically do not show up to local elections, um, but they will to, to federal ones, right? And that's a huge problem. And I think that it's a reflection of people not realizing how much of an impact local and county, local at the level of city and county leadership impacts their everyday, um, you know, quality of life. When it comes to the environment, even though we have a lot of federal regulations and, and some federally regulated entities within our city limits, we also have um, decisions that are being made, you know, every two weeks at city council that impact the way our city is going to grow. And I think that's really what the focus has to be of, of our campaign and of course of anyone who cares about the environment within the city. When we talk about economic growth, a lot of people separate that from community growth. And to me, they're one and the same. 
right? And we're seeing that now with the pandemic, that community and economy cannot be separated. And so when we talk about how we're going to grow, we need to, to take the power back into local hands and talk about how we're going to define value, define opportunity, define growth, um, and think about the who, what, when, where, how, right? Who is building? What are they building? How are they building it? Why are they building it? Um, yes. And where? And that I think is very crucial because um, development, when it comes to building new, you know, homes, new commercial areas, um, tends to be the driving force for um, economic growth. And we need to to realize that we don't have finite resources. Um, we have a huge issue with um, our the availability of quality drinking water, um, as well as the fact that because of climate change, we need to anticipate that our weather patterns are going to change. And when we continue to build into the mountain, into the desert, into our natural floodplains, we are potentially putting a lot of people at risk, maybe not immediately, but certainly if climate change trends continue down the road, when we will start to see droughts followed by heavy rain. Right. And, and that, having been through a number of floods, um, both in El Paso and outside of El Paso, I can tell you, like, it is devastating. It is devastating to, to go through that. It is um, traumatic. Um, it can be lethal. Um, and the recovery is extremely expensive. And so for me, again, going back to community, I'm not an environmentalist who cares only about the environment. I'm an environmentalist who cares about people and cares about economy. That we need right. to also be fiscally responsible um, and think about um, how we spend and what our priorities are, not just right now, but, but in the future. And so yes, federal regulations are super important, but so many decisions are being made on the local level that people are just not aware of, right? The fact that our public service board is basically giving away public land um, because it's so cheap, right? For these developers to buy hundreds and hundreds of acres at once for like minimal amounts per, per square foot. And so there, there is a built-in incentive for them to just build new homes. So what happens is that you start to see a degradation of the urban core. And as an environmentalist, you see the impact on the desert, you see infrastructure having to be built out, um, you see people having to drive a lot more because they're living farther away from the center uh, you know, where, where jobs tend to be. So you see um, on a personal level an expense, but then on a local level, you start to see more pollution. You start to see more roads. You see less wildlife. Um, you see this, all of the impacts of growth that is not responsible um, in any way that's you know, fiscally responsible or environmentally responsible. Um, and, and that's something that we're trying to, to aim for here at this show, you know, which is trying to make the case that local parts, politics can be as, as big and as important as the presidential election, right? Because we know that there's a lot of um, hunger for justice in, in those races, but 
we understand that it can be, um, like you said, applicable here locally. So going into, into those systems that you were describing, can you name some of the examples of local government's legal or political authority that can help us achieve Green New Deal solutions in El Paso? Oh, um, in terms of, of existing um, structures, right. when we look at um, building permits, mm -hmm. right? What is being built, where it's being built, and how it's being built is really important. And so when you start to craft um, energy conservation into every new construction project, you're innovating the um, construction industry, but you're also saving resources down the road. And you're making that family more financially sustainable. So that's one example. Um, public transportation is another. There's, there's so many ways to improve on our public transportation. And one of them is really making it free, which is an expense for you know, the city and, and the county. But when we start to see, luckily we're, we wouldn't be the first ones to do this, right? But there are other cities who are trying to do that as a way to incentivize people using public transit. In the era of the pandemic, of course we're gonna to have to take precautions because cities that rely heavily on public transportation have also been hit by um, how contagious this, this coronavirus has been. But that said, I think that there are so many ways that we can improve upon our public transportation system um, and to really go after um, particular audiences, right? There are people who don't realize that public transit would actually make their lives easier. And these are people who don't typically go home during the day when they're at work, right? It could be teachers, it could be doctors, it could be different types of professions where um, people really, when they go to work, they stay there the eight, nine hours. Mm -hmm. And so they did, you know, once, once you've used public transportation and it, it has, um, you know, you use it consistently, it's a huge benefit to not have to drive yourself, not spend money on gasoline and insurance and all of those things, right? But people don't realize that it's a huge impact on our environment to, to, not, to not use your car. Exactly. And so I think that if, if we started to create even not necessarily large scale transform, transformative changes, but smaller scale um, changes that are really targeting people, they're really getting them to jump on board to these new ideas. Um, because what we're trying to do at the end of the day is change people's priorities and, and to change the way that they see the world. Um, because if you, you know, there are things that we can implement at the city level that will sort of be top down when it mm -hmm. comes to permitting, public transportation, um, oh my gosh, so many other things, um, weatherization programs, things like that. But the fact is that if you don't have a buy-in from the community, it's not going to live very long. And, and what we really want, I think, is for people to start to understand that they have this incredible impact and an incredible opportunity to curtail their impact on the environment and for it to mean something. One of the things that's, that's happened is that, well, I think that happens is that there's a huge distance 
between us and the impact we have on the environment. Most people have never been to the landfill. Most people have never been to the water treatment plant. They've never been to a recycling facility. Um, to bring it to like the animal rights part of it, they've never been to the euthanasia room at the animal services, right? Right. So when they drop off their animal, they're just like, oh, they're gonna get adopted, right? And they, they feel good about it. But if you really took people through a tour of the, of the shelter and to the back room where healthy animals have had to be put to sleep, it changes you. And for me, um, I think it was really eye-opening in college that we had field trips to these different locations, right? We went to neighborhoods that were having rat infestation problems. We went to, um, like I mentioned, landfill, the, you know, the, um, the sewage treatment plant. And not only do you get to see the impact that you're having, because when you put your trash out to the curb, you don't necessarily understand that it goes somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but you get to see that, that you're having this huge impact on the environment. But more often than not, you get to see the communities that live right next to all of these facilities. These facilities are not in isolation. They are next to houses, schools, um, communities, right? Exactly. And I think if we really start to drive all of those points home, people, it has an impact on people. And I think right. that that's the kind of change that we want to drive. And then, of course, have it implemented and enforced through these um, regulatory mechanisms in every possible way at the city, right? Whether it's the, of course, zoning is super important. Um, but when we talk about public transit, we talk about weatherization, um, the roads, the quality of our roads, what we use to, to pave our roads, um, what we use to light our community centers, our street lights, all of those things. Um, I've been involved, as you know, with a, a number of environmental um, justice cases. And I always recommend to my clients to do a toxic tour. And those are the tours where you invite political leaders um, and community leaders to go on a tour of your neighborhood because people don't, they don't realize, you know, how, right. how the proximity between these polluters and, and human beings, they don't, um, it's one thing to hear about it and to even see it on a video, but when you're actually there and you get to see and smell and walk and, and, put yourself in people's literal shoes, it changes everything. When we were in Montana Vista, um, I, I asked my clients to organize something like this and I told them, I'm not gonna be here. I don't want my presence as a lawyer to curtail other people from coming. So just invite whoever you want and then let me know how it goes. And so they got a bus, they were super organized, they had a megaphone, they, they had stopping points so that people could walk through the streets, you know, streets, you know, that are just right outside of the city limits that are not paved, people who don't have, um, you know, natural gas, um, they have water, thank God, but they're, the, the streets are terrible. They don't have street lighting. There are stray animals everywhere. Um, and they're also next to a jet fuel tank and then now a power plant. And so it was really important to humanize our story by taking people through that journey. Exactly. Um, and so I think to the extent that we can do that um, at the city and, and one of our um, top priorities um, 
for, for our environmental platform is addressing environmental injustices in El Paso. Because a lot of people don't realize, right? They've, it's become normal to drive by the refinery. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that right next to the refinery are people. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you, you, you put your, your stuff in the recycling bin and you feel good about it. You don't realize that most of it is not recyclable. And also what is recyclable is going to end up in neighborhoods like the Chamisal. Exactly. It's going to end up right next to Douglas Elementary, mm-hmm. where they have, where the recycling facilities have fires pretty routinely. And those kids have to be evacuated. Um, not to mention the fact that they're also dealing with the traffic that comes from the, you know, from the trash being dumped, um, vermin and um, trash that flies off premises and things like that. And so we have to understand that everything that we do has a price. Someone's paying the price and we so, can't forget about it. Just because it's not you, it doesn't mean that you get to forget about it. Definitely. And, and like you mentioned, it all comes down to awareness, right? Because it's one thing to read about it or to even see it on video, but like to be aware of it, actually see it. Um, and personally, I think that this city is, is ripe for this sort of um, revolutionary awareness per se because like just think about the statistics like um el paso county voted heavily in favor of bernie sanders overwhelmingly right so there's this very um strong block of progressive voters so um i wanted to ask you what do you think has been el paso's biggest obstacle in achieving a truly progressive local government Um, I think that it's been, it's, it's been slow to evolve. I think that when we think about, uh, you know, the progressive agenda, um, it's been around issues that are still very sensitive, right? Um, the right of a woman to choose, um, the, the right of people who are the same sex to get married, um, transgender rights, those things have have been relatively um, taboo in El Paso, despite the fact that we have been historically um, a, a highly democratic, um, you know, um, community or pro-democrat community. Right. I think there was still this, and I say this, having graduated from high school in 1994, where I still felt like this community was very conservative socially that's changed and i think it's changed for a number of reasons one of them is that many people including myself left el paso ran away from el paso because it was so stifling um i was raised in a very progressive family you know we talked about lgbtq stuff when i was nine ten years old and it was like not taboo um we, you know, women's rights were always at the forefront because my great grandparents, you know, separated in the 1940s. Like I was just raised by very strong women, um, very um, incredible men. And so I think for me, my home was very progressive, but my community wasn't. And so when I left, I found, you know, like-minded people elsewhere. And when I came back, I brought those ideas with me. So I think that's had a huge influence. People who are from El Paso who have left and come back, 
Um, El Paso has also always been a magnet for very progressive people from outside of El Paso. Um, because of our location, a lot of people have come here, you know, either to um, the university or to work directly on social service type of issues, on immigration, on um, colonias, on things like that. And so their influence, I think, is also very important. Um, and I think it's also a sign of the times. I think that um, the mainstream media, especially the Spanish language media, has done a, a really great job of um, addressing issues that impact a lot of El Pasoans. And that is, you know, being underinsured or uninsured um, families that are undocumented or have mixed um, immigration status, um, low-wage workers, um, things like that, I think, have become a lot more easier for us to talk about. Right. Now, some of it, too, has been brought about with litigation. And so I... I was around when the Chico Stacos case came about, which involved two men who were kissing at Chico Stacos. And they, um, the security guard asked them to leave and they called the police and the police accused them of a different crime. Um, and so then they filed a lawsuit against, you know, Chico Stacos as well as the city of El Paso. And that was a really important forced conversation for us to have as a community. Right. Um, and I think a lot of good came out of it, you know, and so sometimes a lot of these changes have also been brought about because people have had to, um, you know, bring about lawsuits and bring about conversations about who we are as a community. Um, the case of Duranguito, I mean, when, when we started to litigate Duranguito in, in 2016, I really thought that we were alone, that it was going to be another legal aid case where it was just us and our clients. Um, Paso del Sur was starting to really organize, but I did not expect that two years later, hundreds of people, most of them young people, right, under 25, were willing to get arrested to save a neighborhood. To me, that was just incredibly eye-opening because I had no idea that El Pasoans cared about their history that much that they understood all of the underlying issues, right? That it wasn't just about the sports arena. It mm -hmm. was about the fact that Chicano and Chicana history in this community has never been respected to the level that it should be. That we have tolerated city councils who to our face told us, the new face of El Paso is white and European. It is not, a viejito who speaks Spanish, um, who is working class. Um, those people are dirty. They're the old El Paso. We don't want that anymore. I mean, that was said to us, right? In, in with, you know, back in 2006, 2007 and eight when Segundo Barrio was at risk. So fast forward 10 years and things have changed dramatically where now you have a lot of young people saying like, this is not acceptable. Um, we demand more, we demand respect, we demand protection of our elders. I think that um, El Paso, the beauty of, of what's happened with El Paso and in, in our, you know, our becoming in, in many ways more progressive is that it's happened very organically. Um, I, I feel like we're not, you know, we're not copying Austin or San Antonio. It's our own, our right. own brand of progressive. Um, and I, I think I see that in the art I see that in the messaging. And the fact is that because we are so close to Juarez, there is just so much cross collaboration. 
mm-hmm. um, and and I think that's really what makes us uniquely progressive. But there's still a lot of work to do because people are still not necessarily in the habit of voting. Exactly, it's still not a family event, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's still not um, something that you do routinely. And, and it really is yeah. something that, that takes some practice where you just routinely start to, to um, look out for elections and to look forward to them and to investigate who you're going to vote for and then hold those people accountable once they're in office. Exactly. And, and that sort of um, distrust or just apathy that, that many community members have towards voting might come from uh, the fact that, like you mentioned, previous city councils have just disregarded a lot of community members for for who they are um and so i wanted to shift gears to talk a little bit about the el paso green new deal summit that that sunrise organized and that that you participated in april so um what was your impress what was your impression of the project and um can you tell us why you support this sort of intersectional Green New Deal solutions for El Paso instead of traditional incremental policy solutions. Um, well, I think it was extremely well run, and I I was very impressed with the um, just the caliber of the discussion, and and the fact that um, Sunrise did not shy away from having some hard conversations, and was very clear about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Um, and, and what I think you are doing and, and want to do is to take on huge challenges. And that means, you know, getting into the intersectionality of, of the environmental issues that, that we are facing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, there's just, um, we're out of time. And so there, that is really the reason why we have to look at these issues now and look at them aggressively. Um, the pandemic has given us a forced um, glimpse at what happens when um, the majority of Americans stay home and reduce their carbon footprint. Now, that has been shifted, right? Because people are still buying things online. Mm-hmm. PPE is still produced primarily from plastic, and that's being thrown away on a daily basis. Um, but we we do have, I think, um, ways to really mark our progress. Um, we have air monitors that are telling us that the air is cleaner when we stay home. <laughs> that, yeah. um, you know, we've, um, and it's going to be interesting for, for me to see, and I hope that people start doing this, to really track uh, our consumption during this time period um, when it comes to our utilities. And when it comes to, you know, even our purchasing decisions moving forward, um, it is possible that this pandemic has given us an idea of what is essential and what is not. And and without us addressing um, our consumer patterns and tying those into labor practices, um, into um, financial uh, consumption patterns, right? That for my clients are debilitating um, because they have so much debt and it's it's over things that are not of value often. Um, when it comes to thinking about how all of those things 
relate to um, the environment, I think that this is a prime, it's a prime time for us to really step back and, and take a look um, and, and see what, you know, again, what is essential and what is not. And we're seeing it with some people. Some people are just like, they're, they're not listening to that part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. They want to be out. They want to go shopping. They want retail therapy. Um, they, you know, and so I, I think that's where we need to shift some of the conversations um, in, in terms of what that means, right? When we even say things like that, what does it mean for you to seek some sort of relaxation by consuming? Exactly. And what, is that consumption, what is that consumption? Really, what is it, right? Um, is it a value to you at the end of the day? But also, what were the labor practices that brought you that thing? to your to your hands the transportation practices the production practices um and i'm hoping that what you all are doing will elevate the conversation as painful as it may be to really start talking about um, environmental justice as it relates to um food security job security um you know thinking about people who are often left out of these conversations, um, people who have no choice but to use public transit, um, people who have disabilities and both physical and mental that are left out of the conversation often, um, how we start to reframe what is important and what community means. Um, I think that's really what I saw of value in the, in the summit is that you're, you're shifting the conversation in a very dramatic way. And, and there's no time to have anything that's not dramatic at this point in time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I think, I think that's, that's a great way to, to end this uh, conversation. Um, you know, a lot of us relate to, to your perspective and your background as being an environmentalist, but also a community advocate first and foremost. Right. So, um, can you um, tell your viewers where they can contact you and get in touch with your campaign? Yes. Um, so our website is vetoformayor.com. Um, and you can email us at vetoformayor2020 at gmail.com. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining, joining us today. Hopefully uh, you can join, join us um, at another time. Uh, we love having these conversations with you, but um, yeah, until, until next time, thank you for joining. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Up next, Sunrise El Paso organizer Luis Miranda will share some key updates on local struggles for justice. Thank you, Miguel. I'm Luis Miranda, and this is the In Case You Missed It headline segment of our show. Uh, the first story we will be discussing for our local headlines is the site and release policy. Most of the information from this story comes from two articles published in the El Paso Times and other sources that will be included in the description. On Tuesday, the City Council approved a resolution to establish the city's first site and release program for marijuana possession at the, dis- at the direction of our city manager, Tommy Gonzalez. This program must come into effect no later than September 1st. As of now, The program allows the police department to issue citations instead of arresting someone for four ounces or less of weed, which is a misdemeanor offense. As with traffic tickets, 
the person cited must appear before a judge at a later date. The Texas law affords officers the, dis the discretion to make an arrest in this situation. Uh, the discretionary use of arrest could be used in instances of where the person has outstanding warrants, is intoxicated, uncooperative, or a habitual offender, among other reasons. The resolution passed Tuesday also requires the city manager to provide quarterly program reports to the council that include documented reasons for the stop or arrest, the reason for discretionary use of arrests if used, the race and ethnicity of the person, which is very important, and the region to or zip code where the stop or arrest took place. Gonzalez has to report back to the council late summer on the program status. He also must continue discussing site and release with law enforcement, the district attorney's office, and state representative Joe Moody, a strong supporter for the program, in the months leading up to the start of the program. Assistant Chief of Police Victor Sarur told the council officers will need to be trained on the site and release policy in the coming months. The program will have a recurring cost of $2,636 for 600 citation books that holds 15 citations each, he said. This is a historic decision. As El Paso, will be the, as El Paso was the first city in Texas and the nation to pass anti-marijuana codes in 1915. El Paso had a majority Mexican population then, as it does today, mostly made up of laborers who worked in the cotton fields owned by white settlers. It was often the drug of choice after a long day of work, and the laws were passed partially to control and criminalize the Mexican population. The El Paso Times in those years ran many stories of wild Mexicans smoking loco weed and allegedly calling for the death of Protestants. The use of the term marijuana in the legal language of the law was part of the effort to profile and control the local population, as was the use of religion to divide between Mexican Catholics and the white Protestant settlers. The newly passed site and release program is a sign that El Paso is beginning to move past this racist part of its history. Speaking of El Paso's racist history, our next story is about current racist policies in the borderland. The next headline is 65 COVID-19 cases in Otero County tied to private ICE detention facility. The information used in this story is from El Paso Matters. 65 detainees and employees have been infected by COVID-19 at a private incarceration facility near Chapatal. Health, official, health officials say one of the worst outbreaks in the El Paso, southern New Mexico region. The infected include 38 detainees and six employees at the Otero County Processing Center operated for immigration and custom enforcement, or ICE, and 21 inmates at the adjacent Otero County Prison Facility holds people for the U.S. Marshals Service and New Mexico Corrections Department. This highlights the vulnerability and danger of our prison system with regards to a pandemic, as well as the overall lack of medical care in said institutions. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham harshly criticized ICE and the Marshals Service for allowing conditions that led to the outbreak. She said the state had little control over federal facilities though she vowed to use her power to force improvements. The governor stated that, quote, it's a total violation, I think, 
of states' rights in terms of our opportunity and obligation to adhere to safe public health practices, end quote. The facilities are run by Management and Training Corporation, a private company that operates 26 prison and detention facilities across the country, including another facility in New Mexico's Cibola County. A spokeswoman for the company, Isa Arnita, claimed that they are following all CDC guidelines for prisons and detention centers. An ICE spokeswoman said that as of April 22nd, detention facilities in El Paso area reduced their population to no more than 70% of capacity to allow for social distancing. The Otero Counting Processing Center has a capacity of over just 1,000 beds, so that would mean that 700 people would still be held. Considering that in the past, lawyers representing ICE in court have tried to argue that soap and other toiletries were not essential enough to obligate the agency or any private contractor to provide them, it is doubtful that the agency has, diligent, has been diligent in the cleanliness of their detention facilities during the pandemic. Margaret Brown Vega, a volunteer for AVID in the Chihuahuan Desert, AVID stands for Advocate Visitors with Immigrants in Detention, which visits and advocates for people in ICE detention, said detainees at Otero County, at Otero, are afraid. Quote, one of them said, we did not bring this into the facility. We've been here. We've been locked up here. It's the people who work here who brought it in, and they didn't take careful measure to protect us. And now we're sick, and we didn't do anything. We've been trapped in here all this time, end quote, Brown Vega said. For more details on this story, I encourage everyone to read the entire El Paso Matters articles on this issue as they provide more information. We have a quick update on our Otero County story. Uh, New Mexico Department of Health reports six more COVID-19 cases at the private prison uh, detention facility in Chaparral bringing total to 77, 42 in ICE custody, and 35 in U.S. Marshals custody. Six employees have tested positive so far. Moving on to our third story, we're going to a gunshot trial at, in Ulm, Germany. Perpetrator is given a suspended sentence. Uh, the information used in this story is from the German Institute on Radicalization and De-Radicalization Studies. The article is in German. A 51-year-old from Ulm, Germany, has been recently sentenced to 15 months suspended probation after shooting a German citizen from Nigeria twice. The court, the court convicted the man of committing a racially charged attack. So what does this have to do with El Paso? The attack took place on August 3, 2019, shortly following the Walmart massacre in El Paso on the same day. According to the victim, who suffered non-life-threatening injuries, the gunman opened fire in an inn at the Burghaus Mitte in Ulm. He shouted twice, quote, El Paso, Texas, end quote, alluding to the right-wing eco-fascist extremist attack that killed 23 that day in El Paso. The reason given by the court for the attacker's light sentence was that, that the man confessed and that the victim wasn't severely injured. This story serves as a grave reminder of the threat that ecofascism poses on immigrant communities like ours. On that note, we're going to our final story of the of this week. 
more than 50,000 El Paso jobs lost to COVID-19. This news is also from El Paso Matters. More than 50,000 El Pasoans have filed new unemployment claims since mid-March. These numbers do not include people without a job who have not filed for unemployment or who are otherwise not considered to be looking for employment. About 357,000 El Pasoans were employed as of February, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. The jobless claims since mid-March indicate that at least one of every seven El Paso jobs have fallen victim to the global pandemic. On that final note, this concludes our news for the week, and in case you miss it, see you next week. Thank you for watching the very first episode of Sunrise Weekly. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and follow Sunrise El Paso on social media. Until next time, thank you.